Hi there, and welcome to this episode of Take Home Reading, a new audio series from the Wheeler Centre. In each episode, we'll be speaking to an Australian writer about their latest book and hearing a reading from it. This podcast was recorded on the traditional lands of the Kulin Nation. The Wheeler Centre acknowledges their elders, past and present. We pay our respects to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and to the elders of all lands this broadcast reaches. I'm Stella Charles and I work in the programming team at the Wheeler Centre. Usually I host our monthly reading series, The Next Big Thing, but since we haven't been able to gather together for a few months now, we thought we'd bring these readings to you instead. Today I'm talking to Mirandi Rewo. Mirandi is the author of the novella The Fish Girl, which won Seizure's Viva La Novella 5 and was shortlisted for the Stella Prize and the Queensland Literary Awards UQ Fiction Prize. Her work has appeared in Best Australian Stories, Mianjin, Review of Australian Fiction, Griffith Review and Best Summer Stories. Mirandi has a PhD in Creative Writing and Literary Studies and lives in Brisbane. Her latest novel, and the focus of our conversation, is Stone Sky, Gold Mountain, which was published in April by UQP and won the University of Queensland Fiction Book Award just last week. Welcome, Mirandi. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. How, how about we start with this book's wonderful title, Stone Sky, Gold Mountain. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, so my book is about um, siblings who come over from China to the gold rush in North Queensland in the 1870s. Um, so originally the book was going to be based on Ying, the sister who's disguised as a boy, and it was going to be called Gold Mountain Woman because Gold Mountain Man is what they used to call, the Chinese called the their men who went to either America or Australia to, to the gold rush. They were called Gold Mountain Men. Um, and then that was American and then Australian ones were called New Mountain, New Gold Mountain Men. Um, but what happened is I got interested in her brother's story as well and he slowly became a part of the novel as well, so I couldn't call it Gold Mountain Woman. Um, and in my readings I came across this legend about a stone sky and it's um, a Chinese um, goddess, a sort of um, a goddess of the heavens. Um, what happens is I think the the sky becomes destroyed in some way and she patches it up with things from from the world, um, which include things like wood, fire, earth, metal, and water, which were all things that are in my novel, you know, like quite heavily, you know, like with the fire and, you know, the gold and is the metal and the, the wood of the, all those trees and everything. So I just thought that was really beautiful. So for a while we were thinking even just stone sky, but in the end anyway, it became stone sky gold mountain. I love it. It's really striking. You, you were shortlisted for the Stella Prize for your incredible novella, The Fish Girl, which I also loved. Mm-hmm. In one of your interviews after your shortlisting for the prize, you said that you write of the things that have moved you. What moved you to tell this story? I guess uh, with my, my original crime fiction is set in London and I was doing that thing of retrieving, I guess, characters that you don't, well, don't take centre stage in Victorian or historical fiction, which were, um, say, the Asian people, and that, that there were, you know, a small sort of Asian community in London at the time, which made me then wonder about Australia and the first Chinese here, because my my dad is Chinese, so um, I had that sort of 
you know, personal interest in the first Chinese here and um, and those families that have, you know, those Eurasian families that did start back in sort of the 1860s and, you know, the families go through to now and, you know, how you meet those people and you wouldn't even know that their great-great-grandfather was Chinese or something. I always find that really interesting. So, um, so one group, obviously, who came here early on were the Chinese in the gold rush. Um, and I guess, so in my reading of nonfiction, you know, historical texts on the period, I, I came across one reference to a shepherd um, in Victoria. And so his, and it was kind of a really sad reference to what happened to him about being so alone and, you know, in this land he didn't belong to. And that sort of gave me Laya's sort of whole story arc. Um, and I guess, and the Miriam, I can't, I've come to realise she kind of represents my mum's sort of Irish-English background, like those stories you hear in the family of women who had to give up their babies or, you know, that sort of thing, or, the, you know, those family scandals. Um, and Ying, of course, I just love Ying because she's so, um, you know, gets on with things. So I guess, I guess to me it's writing about people that you can engage with and relate to in real life and you're, you're give, you know, you're giving them life. It's such a visceral novel. It does feel like you really capture this slice of life on the Palm, Palm River goldfields in 1877. <laughs> the landscape and the characters are, are vividly real. How, how many historical documents or information was available to you in researching this story? I'd, I'd love to hear more about that approach for you. Um. I mean, there, there was there was enough for you know a fictional novel, definitely. Um, you, you know, like Trove um, was very helpful for actual you know old newspaper clippings, that sort of thing. The library, I mean, the State Library of Queensland was incredibly helpful. Um, you you've got the historical texts, you know, like Timothy Bottoms and Robert Orsted. Um, one in particular was Eric Roll's book, which was called Sojourners, and he has another one called Citizens, which is the next one about the Chinese who stayed. But his first one's about Sojourners, so it was mostly about the people who came, say, in the 1850s to 1900 before the White Australia policy. Um, and that had a lot, a lot of, in, um, you know, information about the Chinese here of that period. So I sort of worked from that. Um, and what I have, and I'll sort of go into it later, but what I also found was sort of, I guess, they were um, primary sources, you know, like people's accounts of what happened then. But, of course, mostly they were from white men's um, point of view um, in certain, I guess, moods, you know, or themes. And what I had to do was I had to skew those stories, I guess, from a Chinese point of view, so how it might have looked from my character's point of view. Um, there was... In particular, there was one uh, memoir by Tan Zi. He um, wrote about his time uh, walking to Maytown or, or to the Palmer River, which is where my book is set, and then he set up a shop and blah, blah, blah. Um, his was very interesting, like um, like the part, you know, where her shoulders bleed or she talks about the shoulders bleeding from the um, those poles they have to carry. That sort of information came from his memoir. So... There was, there was enough, there was a lot of information to go with and it um, it just then depended on how I used it, I guess. Yeah. Both 
this novel and The Fish Girl are concerned with historically silenced characters who sort of suffer under colonisation and white supremacy due to their gender, race and class. Mm. What do you feel that fiction can do in in grappling with these themes in a way that sort of non-fiction mm. texts can't? Um, I think one thing it can do, because even, say, historical texts or, histor- you know, whether it's fiction or non-fiction in a way is already you know, written or, or portrayed through a certain lens already. You know, it's come to you through a certain lens, which usually is a sort of white male, um, you know, middle class and up sort of lens. Um, I guess one thing writers can do in rewriting these past periods is sort of I think actually it's not, I don't believe in being prescient, like giving them, um, I guess, thoughts and actions that wouldn't have that would have been totally out of place but I think there is a a place for uh, bringing the story back you know back closer to what it actually probably was or could have been you know um, so I think there's that I think it is also having a good look at where you're hearing these stories from in the first place and then maybe you know and then you know working with everything you've learned about the period and and I think fiction is just handy in that some people aren't going to go through all the historical texts that I went through. They're just not, you know, they're not interested, whereas they will read a novel, you know, that has a story. So I think just on a really basic level, that's a, um, it's an easy way or a sort of, you know, a way that people can engage with that period and the ideas behind it. And be moved by them. Yeah, like, yeah, you're building up empathy, you know, for these characters that were probably maybe representative of of actual people and what they actually did think, yeah. Have you been able to read over the last few months throughout the pandemic? I'd love to know what you've been reading and what you've enjoyed. At first I was just sort of scrolling through the news, you know, (laughs) 24-7 like everyone. Um, Luckily, um, Bram... Professor and um, JP Pamari set up a book club. I think it's the End of the World Book Club or something like that. Um, and so, what they've been doing is each month we read um, an emerging writer's or a debut writer's book. So, we've been through like Imbi Nimi's and um, Madeline Watts and Ronnie Scott, you know. So, that's been really good because it's sort of you know, you're trying to be supportive, but also keeps up, up, us up to date on, on books and reading, you know, and then we can have these really engaging conversations about it. So that's, that's one of the great things about Zoom, about Zoom in this, in this pandemic world. Um, what I've been reading lately is Pachenko, I think by Min Jin Lee. It's really beautiful and it's, it's just not this world. So it's kind of easy to engage with and it's beautiful anyway. So, um, yeah, so I've been I've, and I've been doing research, kind of reading for my next novel, which is set in Indonesia. So that's a bit of bit of work, a bit of entertainment. Yeah, and that sounds exciting. Yeah, I'd love you to read an extract from Stone Sky Gold Mountain for us. Is there anything you need to say to set it up before you begin? So what I've done is in my research, I found primary sources. You know, like from. Like there was one man, Mulligan, who sort of prospected the area, one of the first white people to prospect the area. Uh, Warden Hill, now he was a warden in the area. Now he had to go around and check people that the Chinese had their licences because the Chinese had to pay 
a special license to dig and it was and it was racist because they had to pay much more than anybody else did if they came in from Europe or or anywhere else the Chinese had to pay quite a bit more um, so what I've taken I've taken his account as an example of what I've done I've taken his account of what it was like going around hauling these sort of Chinese into line who hadn't paid for their special license and I've skewed it from my character's point of view. So they're watching what's happened. So that's that's a, what I've done a few times in the book just to sort of, um, I guess, bring that historical element in but in a fictional manner. So I'll read from this section where um, the warden, not necessarily Warden Hill, but the warden has come um, to their, to their um, where they're digging for gold. As the Chinese diggers gather, a commotion by the riverbed catches their attention. One of the warden's men returns, grasping a Chinese youth by the upper arm. She thinks the boy's name is Jian. He's skinny, his blue skirt tattered, and he's no taller than the white man's shoulder. He's protesting, trying to pull away. His captor says something to the warden, shaking his head. No license. The warden shrugs and calls to his men in the rear. Two burly men lead a chestnut pack horse forward. With much ceremony and some jangling, they unfurl a lengthy chain. Tens upon tens of metal pendants dangle from the links. Jian howls and scrapes his heels through the dirt as they tug him towards the horse. Ying holds her breath and watches in horror as the tall men circle the boy. She can't see what they're doing. When they finally step back, their captive is manacled to the chain. Nearly another hundred handcuffs swing free. The warden smiles pleasantly at the line of Chinese men, gesturing for them to move forward and show their licences. Each time he checks a slip of paper, he tips his hat and says, Thank you, John Chinaman. Ying's about sixth in line now behind her brother. She tries to concentrate on the sound of the dry leaves rustling above her, the shuffle of feet across the scrubby ground. Anything to drown out Jian's shrieks and the loud, pleading voices of those who join him on that long, thin chain. The warden's men laugh, cut their hands to their ears as though they can't hear, can't understand. When Lai Ye hands over her licences to, to the warden, Ying wonders if her brother's fingers are trembling or if it's a slight breeze that ruffles the paper. The warden reads the slips of paper, glances up at their faces. He still smiles, but his eyes are as blank as sea-polished pebbles. He folds the licences over and returns them. Thank you, John Chinaman. As they make their way to their tent, one of the warden's men's one of the warden's men shoulders past them, heading straight for Chief Fat, who remains seated by his fire. With their faces obscured behind shaggy facial hair and their pink skin florid from the sun, Ying finds it difficult to tell the white men apart, but the man who pushes past them, who stands over Chief Fat, has thick whiskers and his skin is as pockmarked and dirty as a yam wrenched straight from the earth. Chifat nods, places a pronged bullock meat on a boulder. He says something in English and tries to stand, but the other man pushes him down so that Chifat nearly rocks off his stool. Ying thinks the warden's man is talking in English, but she can't understand the role of his tongue, how the words growl from his mouth. Chifat looks up at the white man, puzzled, and repeats himself. Yes, Ying hears. I will get now. He stands and moves to his hut and the other man inches behind. 
Chi Fat tries to smile reassuringly at Ying and says, I was waiting for the end of the line. I was waiting for my meat to cook. He returns with a neat leather satchel. Sliding his slender fingers into the opening, he digs around. He frowns. Pulling the satchel open wider, he peers inside and rubbishes some more. The white man shouts something and Ying clutches the hem of her tunic. She feels faint. I have it. Chi Fat repeats this three times, once in English, as he sets the satchel on the ground, emptying its contents of tobacco, pumpkin seeds and one folded newspaper. My money? My licence? Others press forward and the smoke... The fire's smoke, mixed with curdled sweat and something like the gamey stench of fear, starts to make Ying feel sick. Chi Fat rests back on his heels, his eyes wide as he stares at the satchel. Sweat peppers his forehead. He holds his hands open, palms up. Where is it? Another one, the pockmarked man calls out to his boss, grasping Chi Fat by the elbow. Chi Fat doesn't resist, doesn't protest. It's like all energy is being shocked out of him. He only has time to gather together his satchel before he is dragged from his camp. The Chinese headman moves forward to intercede, but he's pushed aside. The warden gaze, gazes at Chi Fat, looks almost sympathetic, and then nods his head towards the chain. Chi Fat stares at the dozen men already shackled and shakes his head from side to side, his arms tightly folded around his satchel. He tries to escape the other's grasp, takes three running steps towards the bush. With a whoop, the pockmarked man grabs Chi Fat's cue. He holds him by the hair across the clearing as though Chi Fat is a yoked goat. Chi Fat falls to his knees in the dust and Ying has to look away. She can't stand to see his shame. It's then that she notices that Chi Fat's bullock meat, blackened at the edges, has rolled into the dirt. Chi Fat is out of sight now. She can only hear the clanging of the chain and the harsh voices of the white men. The warden's horse snorts and the warden strokes its nose and says, not long. As Laia and the others crane forward to watch what's happening, Ying takes a few steps towards the meat. An ant has already found it, cuts a quick root across the grains of the flesh. A few seconds later, another ant joins the first. Eventually, five ants dart around in circles, surveying their find. The warden finishes checking licences, tethering those who cannot pay the fine. His men gather up their captives in a long line and prepare to leave. Glancing up, Ying thinks she recognises the back of Chi Fat's neat bare head as they're led away. Through her despair, her stomach constricts with hunger. A tin carp arcs through the air, ricocheting off the warden's hat. He takes the hat from his head and his fingers smooth the felt. He says... You chinkies have to learn there's no cheating our laws and turns to follow his men through a grove of bloodwood, his rifle slung over his shoulder. Ying's countrymen throng together in a group murmuring to each other, white devils, evil dogs. One man, hunched, head bowed, weeps into the muddy river water. Nobody looks Ying's way. Swiftly, she bends down and swoops up the bullock meat and slips it into her pocket. Thank you. I'm applauding over here. Thank you so much, <laughs> Randy. <laughs> Thank you. You've been listening to Take Home Reading, a Wheeler Centre audio series. 
That was Mirandi Rewo reading from her novel, Stone Sky, Gold Mountain. It's published by UQP and available now. Please shop local and support new Australian work. We'll be back soon with another episode of Take Home Reading. Until then, visit wheelercentre.com for the best in books, writing and ideas from Melbourne, Australia and the world.